God uh, has another delightful treat for us this morning. Jill Briscoe is one of uh, the speakers for our Idaho Mountain Ministries Conference tomorrow. Um, And when I found out that she had agreed to come to town, I jumped at the opportunity to have her uh, speak with us this morning. And she has graciously agreed. I am excited. You know, Jill is uh, not only someone who knows our Lord intimately, but someone who enjoys Him. And out of that genuine enjoyment of our Lord comes her wisdom and insight, her humor, her uh, honesty, her grace. I um, know many of you have had a chance to hear her. She spoke here about four years ago when she was here to speak at our women's conference. Uh, Many more of you have been taught by her writings. She has authored or co-authored probably 40 or so books uh, that God has used powerfully. My uh, highest recommendation, though, comes when I told my mother that uh, Jill was going to be here, and she got very jealous and very excited for us. Told me that Jill was one of her all-time favorite uh, favorite writers. So uh, that's about as high a recommendation that I come up with. My mother likes you. <laughs> Jill uh, has uh, lost a good part of her voice, but whatever is left, we are going to uh, profit from greatly. Uh, God is uh, going to use her. So let me just get out of the way and let God minister to us through Jill. Yes, it's going to be interesting. But this is 100% more than I've had for the last two days. I've been up in the Estes Park area with a thousand women speaking for four hours a day. And the first day, I literally had nothing. So I whispered my way through that day, and it was very effective. (laughs) They were sitting on the edge of their chairs, so maybe it's a good thing. So I'm thanking the Lord that he's given me this much. And whatever he gives me, I can use. So uh, I hope you can hear me. Now I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, and I'm delighted to be back again and excited about tomorrow, to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. It's a favorite little story of mine. I think it was in 19... 90, yes, I've got the date here in my Bible, that I came back from a train of speaking and had to turn around overnight and go out to Taylor University for their spiritual emphasis week. I love to be on the campuses. It's one of the best things that I enjoy, just being with the kids. I have discovered the gift doesn't age And that's been a thrill for me because that's where my heart and gifts have been with young people. And so I love to get in the campuses. But I was really um, spent. I was out. We're going to talk about a little lady who'd run out. And I had run out. Um, There's a difference between being tired in the work of the Lord and tired of it. I was not tired of it. I was tired in it. I was just out of most of what I needed to turn around and get out to Taylor and I knew it would be a heavy week. They put you in the dorms at night and kids keep you up till two in the morning and start you at six in the morning and keep you going all day. And I came to this passage of scripture before my head went on the pillow that late night. And what I love about the scriptures is 
They are really the green pastures. And we, like little sheep, go to the verses of the scriptures and sometimes we find a little tuft of grass in a corner of a verse that we'd never seen before because God's grass grows overnight, really does. And sometimes that little bit of nourishment from a very familiar passage of scripture isn't needed until you need it. And as I read this very familiar story again, there were three little words that just were there in the corner of the verse. And this little sheep went and gobbled them up. And they come, I'll tell you when they come. Let's read it from verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys at his slaves. And Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Well, your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. So she left him, and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons, and they brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There isn't a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil, pay your debts, you and your sons can live on what is left. And the three little words you probably noticed, I noticed them, was she kept pouring. She kept pouring. And it was just as if the Lord said, Go on, I'll pour in, you pour out. I'll pour in, you pour out. And so I went to Taylor, and I think it was one of the most meaningful weeks of my life, actually. Because out of my bankruptcy, out of my nothingness, he pours in, and we pour out. And so I want to talk about the spiritual resources that we have. Outwardly, we are fading away, wasting away. I'm a wonderful example of that standing in front of you today. I got a bad back, and I've lost my voice, and I'm getting old. I'm four years older than I was when I came to see you last time. And yet inwardly, I can honestly testify that I'm being renewed day by day. And I've never felt better and better spiritual health than I am at this point in my life. What a wonderful thing it is when we discover the spiritual resources we have in the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, this little lady had run out. Very simple outline. She ran out, she cried out, and she poured out. She ran out. Now, whenever we want to know why somebody runs out, it's a good idea to ask the text, and the text should answer us. And so as we ask our questions, why had she run out? It's easy to see. First of all, she was bereaved. That'll do it. If you lose someone you love, you run out. We have a group in our women's ministry called the Widow's Might, M-I-G-H-T. And those widows, it's the only group we don't want to grow for obvious reasons, but it is quite large. And it surprised me how many young widows we have in that group. And I often have the privilege of going and either sitting in and listening or having a word with them. And it always amazes me. I'm certainly on the outside looking in. 
But to hear that common shared grief and problems is um, very touching. One of them, last time I was there, talked about an intimate loneliness that they were fighting. A lonely now. I'm nobody's special anymore. Sort of phrases like this. Grief. Now, this widow actually was young. She had young children. And there's something about a young widow that is especially grievous. It's all they've missed of growing old together in a good marriage. So she was bereaved. She was also angry. Did you notice? She comes to Elisha. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he feared the Lord. And that's a very common thing. God has taken away somebody before time, as it seems. And here you are. And here's a man who really loved the Lord. We can't afford to lose people that love the Lord like that. I remember as a student reading in the newspaper about the five missionaries that had been martyred in Ecuador. And people were saying, what a waste. Where was God? Was he standing in the corner with his hands in his pockets? How could we lose the resource of five trained men, nine, ten years in training, who had a heart to reach a tribe that had never once heard the name of Jesus, all in a day, all at once, lying flat down in the river with arrows in their backs, their first attempt to reach these people, the Indians. How could this be? You know they love the Lord. And so we have our questions and sometimes we run out when we can't get any answers. God, you're not fair. God, you don't care. God, you're not there. All those sort of things. And this young widow comes to the man of God and she pours out her heart in grief and anger. Now, I want to know all sorts of things that sometimes the scriptures don't tell me. My husband always says, I have a habit of peeking around the corner of the verse and seeing who's standing in the shadows, and I love to do that. As he says, though, sometimes, don't go all the way up the block, Jill. <laughs> so it is permissible to peek around the corner of the verse and see who's standing in the shadows. But I do want to know who she is. She's just a little widow. And I had to dig a long time in all sorts of dusty books to find out. But I did find out who the experts think she was, which is very interesting. They believe she was Mrs. Obadiah. You say, well, that's a great piece of biblical information. I really feel edified, Jill. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> she was Mrs. Obadiah. So what? Who's, who's Obadiah? Well, let me just tell you, in case you don't know, we're in the book of Kings. Ahab, King Compromise, is on the throne. He married Jezebel. Her name tells you a lot about who she was. Jezebel. She worshipped Baal. She brought her prophets with her in this political marriage that she made with King Ahab, the king of Israel. He should have known better. He was one of the worst kings Israel ever had. The prophet of the day was Elijah. His name tells you something about him. El, Yah. El, creator. Yah, Jehovah, the one involved with men. This is my father's world that broke my father's heart, but my father wants it back. 
and so he came himself to redeem it. El, the creator God that created all things well. Sin spoiled it. Yah, Jehovah, came down to earth to do something about it. El, Yah. So here we've got Jezebel, and here we have El, Yah. There we have King Ahab in the middle. King Ahab had a right-hand man. His name was Obadiah. And the Bible tells us in the book of Kings that Obadiah was a secret believer. Well, he had to be a secret believer because Jezebel was busy killing all the prophets of the Lord. And here he was, a Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, a Joseph in the court of Pharaoh. Here was Obadiah in the court of Ahab and Jezebel. <clears throat> but he was in a position to do some covert terrorism for God. And as he heard about who were the prophets of the Lord on the list of Jezebel to be killed, he would spirit them away by night. And he found a cave big enough and put them in the cave and saved their lives. Many, many, many prophets. So he was going about this very exciting business. Jezebel was not finding out about it, just a little bit bewildered that when she sent for the prophet, he disappeared into thin air. But think about it. You cannot do something like that and not sustain it. You have to feed them. You have to bribe the people that know you're feeding them to keep their mouths shut. It takes a lot of money. Now if this little widow was Obadiah's wife, it's a very interesting thing that by the time we get into this part of the story in Elisha's day, that her husband is dead. Did Jezebel find out? We don't know. I want to know that. Probably. That was it. But her husband is dead. And he was probably a young man, so she probably found out. And what a terrible thing it is that here she is, a little widow. She has been rich, but now she's poor. <clears throat> Obadiah had been one of the sons of the prophets. He had been to Bible school. He was a secret believer. He was a follower of Jehovah. And here he was, possibly and probably a martyr. <clears throat> That's interesting to me. She was bankrupt. That'll do it. Money troubles. You lose your job. You lose your home. I work for World Relief, and so I live among the poorest of the poor most of my life around this globe. And I tell you, there is something that happens to you when you don't have a home and you don't have a roof over your head and you don't have any money and you can't supply food for your children, etc., etc., and you run out. She was bankrupt. She was bankrupt in a worse way. She was bankrupt spiritually. She was bankrupt spiritually. And one of the things that was doing it was her kids. She was going to lose her kids. You know, touch me, that's one thing, but touch my kids, it's another. Those of you that are parents, perhaps you share that um, with me. The devil knows it's my Achilles heel. If he wants to really obsess me and take me out of usefulness, he touches my children. And I become so obsessed with that, I can't think about anything else. People I'm ministering to, the people that need me, 
It just absorbs me. <clears throat> and the devil knows that. And she said, they're coming to take my children. Now, what was all this about? The creditor is coming. She'd sold the furniture. She'd sold the car. <laughs> she'd sold the camel. She'd sold everything. And now they're coming and she's going to sell her children. No, not quite. <clears throat> there was a law in Israel, which was a very good law, that um, the creditor could take the children of someone who was in debt, give them to a godly Israelite family to train in a trade. In the year of Jubilee, the children will be given back to the widow, able to sustain her and keep her. But of course, by the time we get to the book of Kings, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And they'd sort of forgotten to give the kids back at the year of Jubilee. <laughs> and they never did get their children back. And they weren't treated very well. And they weren't taught a trade. And so she knew that even though the law pertained that she must give the children to the creditor, she would probably never see them again. Now that'll do it. Lose a child. Lose a child by death or divorce. Lose a child. So she was bankrupt. She was battered. I was doing some work in Croatia at the height of the Bosnian conflict, right down on the border. The bombs were going off behind us and the houses were just shells all around. And we were doing a film for World Relief. <clears throat> and as we stood in front of this battered building, half of it had gone right on the border of Croatia and Bosnia. Um, the pastor's wife who was talking to me about this, a young couple who had moved back to pastor right on the border from the safety of Zagreb. Young pastor and his wife and three small children were there. And we were working with them. And she said, Jill, look around at these battered buildings, these half buildings, these shells. And she said, what happens inside a person when this sort of war is going on is like that. These people are just crumbling just like these battered buildings. Only God can do something about that. Only God can do something about that. They need the resources of a mighty God. <clears throat> so you can be absolutely bankrupt. Maybe you are, not for any of these reasons, but for other reasons today. And like the little widow, you've run out. Maybe you've just run out because there's just been too much good stuff going on in your life. And you're just burned out. You've come here today because you know that here in the house of God, the word of God can have something to say to you, and I trust that it will. Secondly, she cried out. Who did she cry out to? Let's ask the question. Well, Elisha, why? I ask. Why didn't she go to a woman counselor? Why didn't she lift the phone to a friend? Why did she go to Elisha? Well, I trust that all of us have an Elisha in our lives. I've had to think a little bit, and you have to study the whole life of Elisha first to figure out why she went to Elisha, perhaps. But I came up with some of my own conclusions. I think she went to him because she knew he was a man of prayer. When I'm in trouble, I head for the one I know who's good at this sort of stuff. <laughs> and I say, please pray for me. I can think immediately in my mind's eye of two of my most close and special and precious prayer partners when I'm talking about this. You know, Elisha was as effect, very effective on his feet, but he was just as effective on his knees. 
That's been my goal this year. I have a spiritual goal each year. And I know that God, through his grace and gifting, and you don't get prizes for gifts, has gifted me to be effective on my feet. But in my Bible I wrote at the beginning of the year, God, I want you to make me this year as effective on my knees as I am on my feet. And it's been a prayer adventure that I am exalting in this morning to be as effective on our knees as we are in our spiritual gifting in any other way. Should be a goal. And I believe that we go to the people who instinctively we know are effective on their knees. And if you want to help little widows, you're going to be effective on your knees. As effective as you are in anything else you do. He was a man of prayer. Possibly that's why she ran to Elisha. Pray for me, Elisha. He was also a man of his word. A man of the word. If we want the little widows of this world to look to us as an Elisha, and you're either a little widow or an Elisha sitting listening to me, the strange thing about the Christian life is you can get up in the morning, a little widow, and you can go to bed an Elisha, or you can get up an Elisha and go to bed a little widow. The idea is that you stay in Elisha all through the day so that little widows can receive from you, and as God pours in, you pour out. All the little vessels are filled. Wonderful. Maybe she went to him because he was a man of the word. Uh, we men and women of the word. I think people know. Maybe they don't like it until they're in need, until they're bankrupt and bereft. And then they head for your door. And they'll be knocking on your door. Stuart's in my verse at our wedding. <clears throat> was, it was noised abroad, Jesus was in the house. You know the story in the New Testament. Jesus came to this house and they tore the roof off to get, get at him. And that has been our heart's desire ever since we got married, that people would tear the roof off to get at Jesus because it's going to be noised abroad, Jesus is in the house. Not Jill and Stuart are in the house. Jesus is in the house. What does that mean? That he is in our lives to such a degree that we are men and women of prayer and of the word. People know that that's where they need to go to get their help. Our nose in the book before our head goes on the pillow, one of my fav husband's favorite phrases, never put your head in the pillow before your nose has been in the book. It's been a life pattern for him, and I've tried to do it too. <clears throat> maybe because he was a man of prayer, maybe because he was a man of his word, maybe because he was a man of integrity, holy, consistent. This man was consistent. That's what we're lacking in the Church of Jesus Christ today, consistency. Just people that just are faithful, that are there, that you can rely on, that are doing it, that are in people of integrity. You know, this man was even giving life after he died. <laughs> There's a marvelous little story about this man after he died. There was another man who died, and they had the funeral. And they wrapped him up as they did and carried him to the tomb. And on the way, some robbers came along. And the robbers were going to rob the men who were carrying the dead body. And so they looked around and found a tomb standing there and opened the stone and threw the corpse in, put the stone on, ran and hid until the robbers went away. And the robbers went away. And they came out. And they thought, well, we better get on with the funeral. So they went back to the tomb where they put the corpse and they opened it up. 
And the corpse said, Hi. And what had happened was it was Elisha's too. And the corpse had landed on Elisha's corpse and stood up in resurrection life. That's consistency. <laughs> Don't you think? That you're giving life after you're dead? I think that's an incredible thing. I want to do that, Jesus. I really do. I want in some way to be giving life after I'm gone. To be that sort of a person. That means little widows are going to come out of our neighborhood and our family and they are going to know where to come. Are you an Elisha? Or are you a little widow? Well, he was certainly a man of compassion. He looked at her and said, What can I do for you? What can I do for you? Now, when I was first converted hundreds of years ago, lying in a hospital bed at Cambridge where I was a student, the girl who led me to Christ said, Now, Jill, you're going to wake up every morning from now on determined to be a blessing. Now, this was quite a new thought for me. I had lived 18 years a totally selfish, self-centered, arrogant life. I had been a curse to all my friends. And the idea of being a blessing was something from outer space. I said, I don't know how to do that. How do I be a blessing? She said, you just go around the world saying to people, what can I do for you? What can I pray for you? How can I help you? I said, is that it? She said, yes. I said, what will they say? Oh, she said, they'll be delighted. Not too many people run around the world saying, what can I do for you today? How can I help you? Well, I found out she was absolutely true. And so I determined to be a blessing instead of a curse. And it was a wonderful thing because I kept bumping into little widows in the shape of my fellow students or the children that I was serving in the British school system, etc., etc. And all you have to do to be an Elisha is to open your heart, discover your spiritual resources, which is the Holy Spirit and the Word and prayer, etc. And then go out into the world and say to people, what can I do for you? Don't have to look for the widow before you ask that question. You ask that question, and if there's a little widow that you're asking it to, they'll tell you. That's how you find the little widows. Just be helpful. You can do that, I can do that. Don't need to go out armed with verses of scripture and all of this. Just say, what can I do for you? <laughs> it's such fun. Elisha, was able to reach out of his own bankruptcy. Remember, he'd lost somebody he loved. Elijah had gone to heaven in a fiery chariot. He tore his clothes a few chapters back. He was grieving. He was alone. He was poor. If Elisha hadn't been poorer than the little widow, he would have given her money. He was all the things she was, but somehow he was full and she was empty. Somehow he was full. And she was empty. Now what he did was wonderful. He reminded her of what she had in the house. Remember the question, what do you have in the house? 
Nothing. Now think what you have in the house. Nothing in the house. Bankrupt. Out. Think what you have in the house. Little pot of oil. Ah, little pot of oil. And as you know, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Oil is one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to use that picture here. We forget in our extremity that we have within us the little pot of oil. We are grieving. We are sad. We are depressed. We are bereft. We are obsessed. And within us we have all that we need for all that we need to be. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the names of God is I am. And the definition of that is I will be all that you need me to be when you need me to be all that you need. That's literally what it means. I will be all that you need me to be when you need me to be all that you need. And what's so wonderful about the Christian life is that when we discover that spiritual resource and we begin to pour out in obedience, thinking that we've nothing to give, he pours in and we pour out. He pours in and we pour out. And we find that even though we thought we were bankrupt, we're full. And so Elisha handles this very well. He says, you go in and you do this and shut the door. Why did he tell her to do that? I want to know. I came to Christ asking questions. I've never stopped. Why did he tell her to shut the door? I don't know, but maybe because he wanted it to be her miracle. And sometimes that's what we have to do to people. Sometimes people can so depend on us, they never discover their own spiritual resources. Sometimes we're discipling someone, someone who are helping somebody, and we don't help them at one line anymore unless we can shut the door, lady, Shut the door, man. You go. You pour out. You do this. You access that little pot of oil. And sometimes people don't understand that. They feel rejected by us. It's like raising kids. There comes a point where you say, it's your choice. You've got to do this. You've got to own this. Off you go. You do it. I can't do this for you anymore. It's what parenting is all about, spiritual parenting as well. And so they go in and she shuts the door. You see, if Elisha had been there, I think if I'd been the little widow, I would have just said, well, of course, Elisha's here, of course, this miracle. It's his miracle. Something to do with this great man of God is because of him. She was just a little widow. She was just a little nobody. She was just like you and me, just a little dust person. That's all we are, just little dust ladies and gentlemen, dressed as clothes, eating dust clothes, taking dust pills. But dust dignified with divinity. Inside us is the Almighty God. So we're just a little widow with a great big extraordinary God living inside of us. And that turns us into an Elisha. This is the Christian life, Christ in you. Hope of glory. And so... She goes in, and her boys and children become part of the miracle. And she looks at that little pot of oil. 
What a moment. A choice. According to your faith, be it unto you. And the boys were looking at the little pot of oil and a room full of empty vessels, thinking, this isn't going to work. <laughs> she tips it up. And the oil didn't stop flowing till every one of those vessels was full. She poured out and he poured in. She sold the oil and lived off the good of it. <clears throat> Let me give you one illustration to finish. A personal one. When I was in missions, <clears throat> I was a little ministry widow. My husband was away. Months and months on end. And there came a point where I ran out. I just ran out. All sorts of reasons. But fortunately, God had put an Elisha in my life, my senior missionary. And so I went to her, and in anger and bitterness, I complained. I want my husband back. I want out of missions. I want a normal family life. Sick of the daddy space, etc., etc. And my Elisha did what this Elisha did very wisely, with great compassion. She reminded me of my spiritual resource. What have you got in the house, Jill? Nothing. I'm out. I'm done. I'm out of here. But you've got the little pot of oil. Now don't give me the scriptures. Don't I know the scriptures? <laughs> but Jill, you have the little pot of oil. And she encouraged me to start pour out of my bankruptcy even though I felt I had nothing left, even though I felt as bad as this little widow felt. And I think it was two days later, I was driving along in the car and saw a farmer's wife, picked her up, took her along, and um, she started, she was so far off from God, you wouldn't believe it. I thought it's gonna take a year to win this lady to Christ. I began to meet with her, just out of sheer obedience, starting to pour out when I didn't feel like it. When you can't feel him with your feelings, feel him with your faith, that feels different. And live in your knowings, not your feelings, and that's what I was trying to do. And so I started to tell her about the Lord, and um, about three months after this, she said to me, when are you going to lead me to Christ? And I said, you're not ready yet. <laughs> and she said, how do you know? I've been praying for weeks you'd have the courage to lead me to Christ. And so, rather surprised, I did. And she began to pour out, and God began to pour in, and her husband called me and said, have you got a Bible like you gave my wife? I can really understand that one. Living Bible had just come out, and I'd given her one of theirs. And so I go around to Norman and give him the Bible, and Annette leads him to the Lord, and he's a farmer, and he's got a big barn. And so he said, um, would you like our barn? Because by now... I was pouring out my bankruptcy and God was pouring in and kids were coming to Christ and I'd nowhere to put them. My little house was too small. And so I said, well, don't, aren't the cows in it? And he said, yeah, well, I'll put the cows out and <laughs> we'll make it a youth center. And so Norman and Annette gave us their barn in the middle of this field and God poured out and he poured in to us and we poured out, three of us together, and some youth leaders from those kids that had come to Christ and the barn began to fill up. One day, my children became part of the miracle, just like these children became part of the miracle. 
And I remember David, our eldest son, saying, Mother, what we really need is a bus, because if we had a bus, we could get all the kids from town that don't want to walk eight miles, eight miles, which they were doing, 100 kids from the town to a barn and eight miles back at the end of the meeting. Um, we need a bus. And I said, well, we don't have money for a bus. He said, well, let's pray for one. I said, you don't pray for buses. And he said, why not? And I said, well, I don't know, but you can't pray for a bus, David. So he said, well, the kids have been praying about it, and you don't need to join us, but we're going to pray for a bus. So there in my living room, they joined hands, these long-haired kids that had come to Christ, and my son, David, he was about eight or nine. And they prayed for a bus. To my horror, I heard David pray for a blue one. <laughs> a blue bus. Lord, this is getting harder. But of course, God is in it. And when God is in it, God is in it. And he knows where the blue bus is. And there's a man in London, the other end of the country, who had this blue bus. And he was trying to give it away. He tried to give it to OM. They didn't want it. That's the biggest miracle of this story. Because OM do nothing but have old buses and turn them around and use them in missions. They didn't want a bus. So he tried the Salvation Army and they didn't want a bus. He had been once to Cape and Ray where we worked. He had met me once, two or three years before. He had no idea this miracle had started of blessing in our little valley. But he got on his knees and he said, what am I going to do with this bus? I'm going on the mission field, turn it into money, what do I do? And into his mind came my name as clear as a bell. Give it to Joe Briscoe. He didn't even call me. The kids, to my horror, had prayed for the blue bus to come on a Wednesday. <laughs> this was because on the Thursday we were having a special meeting in the barn and they wanted to use the bus. <laughs> on Wednesday night, as I served them, whatever I was serving them, my back to the window, David's face to the window, here comes the blue bus. Jesus has sent the bus, he said. I said, what? Turn around. There's this blue bus. David's out there. He's honking on the horn. He comes running in. He says, can I pray for a bike next? <laughs> He's off. He's off. Can Jesus give us a bus? Of course, Jesus can give us a bus. He can give us anything he wants because we're pouring out and he's pouring in and we are linked into the purposes of God and we're getting on with what we're meant to be getting on with. And we're using our spiritual resources. And so, of course, the barn got too small and the bus did its work and soon we didn't need it anymore because there was a great big warehouse that some of the kids came and said, let's buy this four-story warehouse in town and... Uh, Let's move everything to there. Well, of course, I went through the same thing. We haven't got any money. I haven't got more time. I've got three kids. My husband's not here. I can't do this. <clears throat> and one of the kids challenged me. He said, you've always told us that if you ask God and he tells you to do something, you're to do it. Will you ask God about the warehouse? Will you ask for a direct word? And if, if he says something to you, can we buy the warehouse? He'll, he'll give us the money somehow. I said, well, all right. And that night I sat down and I chose a part in my Bible that I was sure God couldn't talk to me about a warehouse in, <laughs> which was the book of Malachi. I mean, you're safe there, right? <laughs> well, I didn't know my Bible very well because it's the verse that says, bring ye all the tithes into the warehouse. Prove me now, says the Lord. I'm going to open the windows of heaven, listen, and pour you out a blessing. And you're not going to be able to receive it. 
So, of course, we bought the warehouse with nothing. And the same kid had the bright idea of me being a teacher, running a school in it, working for nothing. He had great ideas. <laughs> and using all the proceeds to buy the warehouse, which is what we did. When we moved to America in 1970, those kids walked up to me and gave me the locket I wear around my neck, on the back of which says Malachi 3.10. Bring you all that you've got into the warehouse and then prove me, because I'm going to open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, and there's not going to be room to receive it. I didn't know until this year that that prophecy, if you like, has come true nearly 30 years after I left the warehouse work to come and minister here in America. I went home for our 50th anniversary to the mission. I went down to look at the warehouse and there's a great big sold on the outside of it, just been sold, 30 years later. And I asked what was happening and they said, well, it's really very wonderful but there's no room anymore in the warehouse for all the kids. And I said, how many kids? They said, a hundred thousand. I said, what? They said, yes. What happened was that the kids that came to Christ got a vision for their schools. And so they went around to the churches in the north of England and said, would you support a schools worker? Because religious knowledge is the only subject has to be taught by law in the British school system. So we'll go into the schools and ask if we could teach scripture nobody wants to teach because they're not believing people, teachers in England. And seeing the school has to teach them, maybe they'll let our missionaries teach the scripture in the schools. And so we trained them in our Bible school and these kids became school workers. And now there isn't a school in the north of England that doesn't have a school worker supported by the churches in the local area. And there are 100,000 kids in those groups. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? When you pour out and God pours in. It all starts when you remember that even though you might think you have nothing in the house, you have the little pot of oil. I was giving this talk in my eldest son's church up in the upper peninsula of Michigan in the middle of nowhere, the boondocks. And my little grandson, five, we have nine grandchildren, but this particular little grandson, our eldest, then five, was sitting doodling on his um, bulletin while I was talking. And um, when I came down, he'd done what kids usually do. He'd been drawing me up talking. You know how they do that. But he'd been playing with the sermon title, The Little Pot of Oil. And maybe it was his Nana's British accent, but he'd altered the word oil and put all, A-L-L. That's what he thought I was saying. I kept that bulletin because it is the little part of all. All that you need him to be when you need him to be all that you need. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit, our little pot of all. 
And no matter where we come from, whether we've come as a little widow or whether we've come in as Elisha today, we all need to be reminded of our spiritual resource, that we have all that we need in you, internally, inside us. And blessed Lord, may we go out from this place to pour out. And as we in obedience and faith, like that little widow, dare to pour out into the empty lives, empty vessels of all the people that we meet. May you, as good and as true to your word as you are, pour in. As we take a step of faith, may we find all the spiritual resources that we need to be a blessing. I think of the school's work in England. I think of those 100,000 kids in those groups in those secular British school system. And I think back to an empty, angry missionary. What would I have done without my Elisha? And I thank you for all the Elishas that are in this room. And I pray that you would make every one of us an Elisha. I ask it for your kingdom's sake, your name's sake, for Jesus' sake. Amen.